Refuge is a safe place. Refuge is a safe place. Refuge is a safe place for all people. For all people. For all people to explore and restore. To explore and restore. To restore and explore. To explore and restore their faith in Jesus and His church. Refuge is a safe place for all people to explore and restore their faith in Jesus. And His church. Huh? And His church. And His church. close your eyes. I'm going to have you do something. Nobody's going to see your purse or wallet, I don't think. I want you in your head, in that darkness of your head, to picture worst person you know, personally. The most conniving, the most unfaithful, morally wrecked, spiritually bankrupt person you know. All right, open your eyes, look up here. Not to raise your hand here, actually, please don't raise your hand, but how many pictured yourself? Maybe you did, because you've heard me preach before. But I know that I am the worst person I know because I know myself better than anyone else out there. I know my thoughts. I know my mixed-up motives. I know I start every day saying, man, I'm going to be a good person today. And then somebody pulls out in front of me going 10 miles per hour under the speed limit, I'm like, nope, try again tomorrow. I'm exposed. We all tend to be very good lawyers when it comes to our own sin and very good judges when it comes to the sins of others. I hate to break it to you, but you are the worst person you know. As Paul said, you are the worst of sinners, the least of saints, and if you can admit that, then that's actually the starting point of no longer being a slave to fear and living as a free child of God. Welcome. <laughs> My name is Brian Culbertson. I am one of the pastors here. I have not preached in six or seven weeks, and so you've been warned. <laughs> it's going to get wild. There's something freeing about leaning into a Savior who knows your innermost thoughts who knows your deepest longings, a Savior who knows my arrogance and my pride and my self-righteousness, every nook and cranny of my sin-filled heart. He knows it, but says, I love you anyway. We're going to continue a series tonight. We're going through a couple of stories in the synoptic gospels, and we're going to each time take two weeks. We're going to look at the same story, We're going to look at that same story in two of the different synoptic gospels, and then we're going to look at it from a different angle or a different point of view or perhaps the motives of the writer. And so this week and next, we're going to look at the story of Jesus healing the paralyzed man. Now, I've preached over 300 sermons in the last seven years at this church, but I've never actually preached this text. And so I was feeling recharged from my long vacation. I like a good challenge. And so I asked Nicole, hey, Can I preach both weeks? And so the next two weeks, you're going to get two weeks of me preaching two different gospels, two different sermons on this one story. And fair warning, the reason I haven't taught this before is we had a substitute preacher the last time we hit the story. Uh, It was Scott Morrison. If you know Scott, it was back in early 2020. The week after he's preached, uh, we didn't have church for the next five months. And so (laughs) 
Let's hope and pray that does not happen this week. But I'm going to be preaching tonight from Mark chapter 2. That's where he tells this story, verse 1, and it begins like this. The words are on the screen. It says, when Jesus returned to Capernaum several days later, the news spread quickly that he was back home. Soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there was no more room even outside the door. While he was preaching God's word to them, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, so they dug a hole through the roof above his head. Then they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, My child, your sins are forgiven. And so again, I am reading the Synoptic Gospels, or Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I am reading from the Gospel of Mark, which was written just as the apostles, the first witnesses of Jesus, were dying off. Mark is the shortest of the Synoptic Gospels. Most people believe that Mark was the source for Luke and Matthew. All but 31 verses in the Gospel of Mark are replicated in those two Gospels. Though those two would get an F for citing their sources because there is no citing in their work. They should have used APA or something there. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which is not one of the synoptics, but another gospel, another telling of the story of Jesus, each of them in their own way tell the story of the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection, the and the promised return of Jesus. But not as a biography, not as a straight history of Jesus' life, but as the gospel, as the Greek implies, of good news. Their primary purpose is good news. Mark actually begins in verse 1 of chapter 1. He begins his gospel this way. He says, this is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. He doesn't leave any question to what he is writing about and his purpose. He is not writing about a religious program to accept. He is not writing about a philosophy that you need to adopt. He is writing about the good news of a person who changed everything. Now, Mark being the shortest gospel means it is very fast in its pace. It's oftentimes like drinking from a fire. Mark will be like, Jesus did this, and then he did that, and then he died, then he rose again, the end. There's no birth narrative, there's no genealogy, there's no sermon on the mount. Very few parables are in there, though he does have a few. He's kind of got the highlight reel of miracles. And then it ends abruptly after Jesus appears to the women at the tomb. There's no great commission, there's no ascension. Why does he do that? Why does he keep it so short and condensed? Because he is focused on an objective, to concisely convey the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And to do that, he uses a particular style. It's, it's an intentional style of action and then reaction. And so as Mark writes, he will zoom in like he's filming a movie and zoom in on some action that Jesus is doing. It might be a miracle. It might be some teaching. It might be a controversial statement. He will zoom in to that action. And then he will zoom out and show the reaction of the crowds or the response of the disciples or the religious leaders. And so in Gospel of Mark, he'll show Jesus feeding the 10,000. And he will zoom in on that story. And then he zooms out to see the crowds that mocking Jesus and shouting insults later at his death. He zooms in on Jesus calling the 12 disciples, and then he zooms out on their response as they abandon him in his darkest hour. He zooms in on Jesus' teachings, and then he zooms out to the response of the religious leaders who have Jesus arrested and killed. 
And so tonight in this story, Mark has zoomed in on some action. Four guys bringing their paralyzed friend to Jesus for healing. It's a very dramatic story. And we'll talk maybe more about that part of the story next week. But for this week, what did these men want for their paralyzed friend? Just answer that in your head. Or what did the paralyzed man want for himself? I mean, it doesn't take a lot. We all know what this man and his friend wanted. Everyone in the audience that day knew what this man wanted. He's paralyzed. He wants to be healed. He wants to walk. He wants to run. He wants to be able to get a job. He wants no more bed sores. He doesn't want to urinate on himself anymore. He doesn't want those looks of pity and disgust from every stranger that passes by. Everyone knows what this man wants in his interaction with Jesus. Everyone that is, it appears, except Jesus. And so Mark zooms in on this paralyzed man. This man is there laying on the ground. His friends have dropped him through the roof. They're up there. They're still watching. Jesus is looking down upon this man. And the expectation is for Jesus to say, rise up, be healed, pick up your mat, man, and walk. But Jesus says, looks at this man who wants nothing more than to stand and walk. And he says, my child, your sins are forgiven. And this man's like, gee, thanks. <laughs> That's not what I'm here for. That's not what I need. I can't walk. I can't go to the bathroom on my own. I have a more immediate problem that I am dealing with. And Jesus says, no, you don't. This is really important. Jesus is saying to this man, you think you know the main problem of your life, but you don't. I know you're suffering. I know how awful your situation is and how much you want to be healed. I know how you expected your life to turn out differently. I know the persecution you've experienced. I know how unfair your situation is. I know you've been let down by everyone else in your life. And we're going to get to all of that. But first, I must deal with the main problem in your life. It's not suffering. It's sin. Now, I don't know if the people then found that offensive, but if somebody said that today, if Jesus was here today, that would be offensive. If you said that to someone else, that would be offensive. Can you imagine saying to someone, going through a difficult situation, they've got chronic suffering, a terminal diagnosis, they've lost a child, they've got a runaway child, and you say to them, yeah, but that's not your main problem. Your main problem is your sin. So let me maybe restate this idea in a way that's more palatable to us in 2023. The main problem in your life isn't what's happening to you. It's the way in which you choose to respond. And ironically, that can be a very empowering statement. Because we can do very little about what happens to us or what other people do with us, or the lot that we're dealt with in life. But we can do something about how we respond. We can do something about our sin. When the Bible talks about sin, we think it's often just referring to the bad that we do, the lying and the lusting and the murdering. Hopefully we're not doing that, and the stealing. But sin is also ignoring our Creator 
in the world that he made. Sin is living a life not utterly dependent on God. Sin is anything can save us. Anything can bring us joy and satisfaction other than the full presence of God. And Jesus says, that, my friend, is your main issue. So Jesus is going to take this man deep. Man says, I want to be healed. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. You've underestimated your sin. You are the worst person you know. And so I am not going to set you up for failure by giving you the deepest desire of your heart until I change the deepest desire of your heart. Everyone who is paralyzed with every fiber of their being is going to not want to be in that condition. Can we agree upon that tonight? If anything else, we can agree upon that. That's natural. And so in this moment, as this man comes to Jesus, that's where his hope lies. Man, if only I could walk, then my world would be right. I would never be unhappy again. I would never complain again. If I could be healed, I'd be content. And Jesus says, my child, you're wrong. If I only healed you, yeah, there would be a brief moment of euphoria. And you'd say, I'd never be unhappy. My life is complete. And that would be great. Give it a month, two months, maybe give it a year. Heck, for most of us, give it two hours. And we'd be right back to where we started. Because the unhappiness of the human heart runs deep. And so let me give you a simple illustration to try to bring this to focus. Celebrities. I don't mean to beat up on them or anything here. But their stories generally are kind of cliche, right? I mean, in the last week, Nicolas Cage was on 60 Minutes, and you see the train wreck of his life after he became famous. Michael J. Fox, of course, he's dealing with Parkinson's now, and that's changed and transformed him. But when he first got fame, man, it nearly destroyed him. And then Whitney Houston, that is not Whitney Houston in the picture, by the way. That's from the movie. But if you haven't seen it, uh, Dance with Somebody or something like that, pretty good movie. But we know that her life ends in trauma, tragedy, and death. And we see the story just repeat with actors and musicians and so on. They'll be living in squalor and they're struggling and their talent's not being recognized or whatever. And if only I could, if only I could make it, if only I could be rich, if only I could be famous, if only I had the recognition that I deserve, then I would be happy. What kind of people were these people before their fame? Well, they're mostly like the rest of us. They were sometimes stressed out. They were very driven people. Sometimes they would get angry. They're like the rest of us. But what happens when they actually get the deepest desire of their hearts? Well, we know the stories. They become unstable. They become erratic. They're more angry, more manic. And so it's not a stretch remotely to say that most people end up less happy than they were before they got everything they ever wanted. They worked, they pushed, and the morning after they became famous, their life was actually infinitely worse. That giant thing that they were striving for that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide personal fulfillment and happiness, it happened and nothing changed. They woke up and they were still the same person they were before. And it nearly destroys a lot of them. Thankfully, most of us will never get our full heart's 
desires. And thankfully then, many of us won't end up as miserable as a lot of these celebrities. And so I'll ask you, what if God granted you right now your deepest wish? That thing that you think, if only blank, then my life would be complete. That could be the worst thing that could ever happen to you. Unless that thing that you are given is no longer your deepest desire. So let me put it another way. Unless we are no longer making that thing, that desire, the thing that saves us. So often when we pray, we're praying for these false saviors. We're actually praying to Jesus to give us a replacement Jesus for our lives. Jesus, just give me a little help over the hump so I can go back to saving myself. And it never occurs to us that we are looking to the wrong things. And so Jesus says, no, you got to go deeper than that. You just want to turn the page. You just want to change a few things. You just want to reach that go. But first, you've got to change the very thing that your heart wants most. Everybody knows here that I'm a C.S. Lewis fan. Started reading C.S. Lewis before I was a Christian as a kid. I remember in fifth grade reading all the little Chronicles of Narnia book and just what great kid stories they were. Yeah, there was some spiritual elements to it, but one of the books is called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. There's a movie, if you're not a reader, you don't want to become a leader because you're not a reader. If you, there's a movie out, if that's more your tone, it's from like early 2000, so you know, it's a little dated now. There's a boy in the movie, or the book, his name is Eustace, and Eustace is selfish. He is mean. Nobody gets along with him. He hates everybody, and everybody hates him. And so Eustace finds himself on a magical boat. The boat's called the Don Treader. They go on a voyage. That's the name of the book. The boat stops at an island. Eustace gets off the boat. He wanders off and he finds a cave. In this cave, it is filled with treasure. There are diamonds and there is gold. And Eustace says, I'm rich. And immediately because of who, his, who he is and his personality, now he thinks, now I'll be able to pay everyone back who slighted me, who laughed at me, who belittled me. And he falls asleep on this great treasure. And what happens, this treasure is actually the hoard of a dragon. And because he falls asleep on this hoard of a dragon treasure with dragonish thoughts on his heart, in the story, when he wakes up, he's become the dragon. And he is big, and he is terrible, and he is ugly. And he realizes, I can't get back on the boat. There's no way off this island. I'm stuck here all alone. And he falls into despair. One day, the great lion, Aslan, shows up. Aslan the lion leads him to a clear pool of water. And Aslan tells Eustace to undress and jump into that pool of water. And so Eustace eventually realized that to undress means to peel off that dragon skin. And so he begins to gnaw at that skin, and he begins to claw at the scales, and he realizes if he does this enough, he can actually shed the skin. And so he works at it, and he finally gets all the skin peeled off, but to his dismay underneath, he finds another dragon skin. And he does it a second time and a third time to no avail. And the cycle just continues to repeat. And finally, he looks at Aslan, just so pitiful. And Aslan says, you're going to have to let me do it. 
You're going to have to let me go deeper. And here's how Eustace tells the story in the book. He says, I was afraid of his claws. I can tell you, but I was desperate. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. He peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt when I did it. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. Then he caught hold of me and threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. And then I saw I turned into a boy again. It was a powerful kid's story. Like this boy, a paralyzed man in our story, we think, man, if I can do this myself, I can fix myself, I can save myself. If only God just gives me a little bit of help, I can do the rest myself. But Jesus wants us deeper. He wants to claw all the way into our hearts and start to reshape them. See, it's not our wishes that's the problem. It's not the desires that's the problem. Just like it isn't wrong for this paralytic to want to walk or a celebrity to want to succeed or to be wanted to be loved and accepted or to want to stop living paycheck to paycheck or whatever it is that you desire. It's the fact that we think getting the deepest desires of our hearts will save us, will make our lives complete. That's the problem. Mark has zoomed in on that action, but now he's going to pull the camera back. He's going to look at the reaction of the religious leaders that are nearby. Verse 6, it says, But some of the teachers of religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, What is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. And so these religious gurus, they are outraged. They believe that Jesus is blaspheming, that he is claiming to do something that only God himself can do. Only God can forgive sins. And they are 100% correct. And so I got an illustration for this as well. You know, we have two other teaching partners besides three of us here at Refuge, Nicole, David, and myself. And I was going to do this in person with David. But David is his back is jacked. He's had back problems, as you know, for a long time. He's in a lot of pain, so he's home tonight. And so I asked Casey to do this amazing graphic design work that you are going to see. She makes a lot better cupcakes, I'll tell you, than she does graphics. But she said they're ironically terrible and great. So that's what these graphics are. But let me tell you this, this little scenario here. Nicole, let's say, has been having nightmares. She's been having nightmares because you all know that thing that David showed us last week. It's creepy, and so Nicole's been having nightmares. And, of course, we have a staff meeting every Monday or every other Monday. And so at the staff meeting, let's say that Nicole sees David, and she just straight up punches him in the face for showing that creepy whatever that thing is. And so David gets a black eye, a broken nose. She knocks out some teeth, and poor David ends up in the ER. He's got to have dental surgery. His medical bills are piling up. You know, one night in the ER is like $30 million or something these days. And so I come to church tonight, and I see Nicole. David's not here. And I say, Nicole, I walk up to her. I say, Nicole, I forgive you for punching David in the face. It's all right. It's over. Nothing else needs to be said. We're good. 
What's David going to say when he comes back? Brian, you can't forgive Nicole. Only I can forgive her. She didn't wrong you. She wronged me. You can only forgive a sin if the sin is against you. So when Jesus looks at this man, he says, your sins are forgiven. You know what else he's saying? He's saying, I can forgive those sins because those sins have been against me. And so these religious leaders are right. Jesus is claiming to be God. This man, Jesus, is not claiming to be just a miracle worker. He's claiming to be the Lord of the universe. And so verse 8 says, Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking. And so he asked them, why do you question this in your hearts? Verse 9 says, is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or stand up, pick up your mat, and walk? If I were to ask you that question, how would you answer the question? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or stand up, pick up your mat, and walk? People are still debating that now. I went to the commentaries, and the, the answers are as varied as the commentaries. But it's, it's a great Jesus-styled question that made people think then, that's keeping us on our toes now. And on first reading, it would kind of seem to say that Jesus is saying, you know, anybody can say your sins are forgiven. There's really no way to verify it. Just your sins are forgiven. Who knows? But if I were to say get up and walk, and the man didn't walk, it would be proof that I'm just some crazy snake charmer. So that's one part of the answer to this question. But see, we are here on the other side of the cross, and we know that this question has more than one answer. For God, miracle, man, that's easy. It's a cakewalk. Forgiving the sins of humanity, the hardest thing ever accomplished in the history of eternity. And so don't miss what's happening right here, chapter 2, this very familiar little story. Jesus just made a down payment on your forgiveness. He just took the decisive, irreversible step that is going to lead to the cross. So verse 10, it says, So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. And so Mark's going to zoom back again on the action. He says, Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, Stand up, those words you wanted to hear, pick up your mat, go home. Verse 12 says, the man jumped up, grabbed his mat, walked out through the stunned onlookers. Now Mark has zoomed away to the reaction again. It says, they were all amazed and praising God, exclaiming, we've never seen anything like this before. It's easier to heal a paralyzed man than it is to forgive this man's sins against God. Jesus reveals that he has the power to do the latter by performing the former. So we know Jesus had the power. Right there, first request to heal this man's body. Could have did it instantaneously before he even asked. Just as he has the power to give you that thing you desperately want. That career, repair of that broken relationship, to take away that illness and addiction. Your battle with doubt, your insecurity, your injustice. He could take it away like that. The inequality in your life, the trauma you've experienced. He could take it away like that feeling like a failure, the direction you've been seeking, the financial struggles you're having, he could deal immediately and fix it all. 
Jesus has the power and the authority to give each of us exactly that thing we want, that thing we're asking for, on the spot, no questions asked. But Jesus knows that's not deep enough. He knows that whether this man is lying on a mat or if he's struggling as an actor or if he's a burned out pastor, he doesn't need someone who can just grant our wishes. We need someone who can take us deeper. Someone who will use his claws to pierce that self-centeredness, that pride, those sinful motives. Jesus knows this man and us, we need than a miracle worker. We need more than a genie in a bottle. We need a Savior. A Savior who knows our innermost thoughts. A Savior who knows your deepest longings. A Savior who knows my arrogance and my self-righteousness and my wish to please everyone. A Savior who knows every nook and cranny of my being. So we need a Savior who sees us at our worst who knows we will fall asleep on him, who knows we'll abandon him if we're given the opportunity. We need that Savior because that Savior loves us anyway. The claws of Jesus that tear away our sin, that cuts into our hearts, those claws, it's love. Love is the claw of Jesus. C.S. Lewis again says this. He says, the hardness of God is kinder than the softness of man. That is a profound line. And so God uses his claws of love to tear away the flesh of sin. God uses the claws of kindness to convict us. God uses the claws of mercy to wake us up. God uses the claws of grace to make us go deep. I'm going to ask the band to come up. And as they do that, and we prepare to sing this final song, if Mark was writing the gospel of you, and he zoomed in on the action of your life, and the readers of the story saw in your life the daily miracle of grace, of kindness, of mercy that God gives you every minute of every day, and then he zoomed away, to see your reaction, how you responded to that daily miracle of grace, what would they see? Would our lives reflect the freedom that Jesus has given us? Would they be lives that someone would see that we're living with reckless abandon or fighting for our neighbors or being bold with our resources or giving grace to everyone no matter how much we dislike them? Or would Mark zoom away from that miracle of grace in our lives and see someone who is still living as a slave to fear, even though they don't have to, a slave to circumstance, a slave to sin. And so as we sing tonight this last song, maybe just open yourself up and let Jesus claw away at you a little bit. Tear away some of that outer skin. Let him dig deeper with his amazing grace. Won't you stand as we sing?